0: Today is August 21st, 2009, and my guest is Michael Munger of Duke University. Mike, it is always a pleasure to have you on the program. It's great to be back. Our topic for today is culture, and by culture, I don't mean Puccini and Picasso, but rather the way that people interact on a daily basis in our ongoing lives with each other, our expectations, assumptions about how others will behave. You and I came up with this topic after your recent stay in Europe, Tell our listeners what you were doing there.
1: Well, I was teaching at Friedrich Alexander University. I was teaching two graduate classes, and uh, it's it's in Germany, in uh, Erlangen, Germany, just north of Nuremberg. I don't speak any German. That's not normally a problem, because I live in the U.S., but uh, living in Germany for four months, I was often reminded of the importance, not just of speaking German, but of understanding kind of meanings and expectations, which were... Sometimes subtly and sometimes substantially different, and I, I often embarrassed myself.
0: And these are you know, when when business people travel, they're told about how people shake hands, whether they bow, uh, what kind of small talk, hand gestures, etc. are going to be expected or the norm. Uh, my brother recently was in Japan, and he was in his hotel. He checked in, checked into his hotel, and he asked somebody maybe the concierge if if he should tip uh the person who took his bag uh for him up to his room and there was a look of horror uh in response because in Japan tipping is not done. Yeah, it's an insult. It's, it's isn't, it. In America if you don't tip you're going to you might get your bags <laughs> An <laughs> even worse insult. Yeah, much worse. Uh, right. it's that's a mistake you want to make in one direction if you're going to make it. Um yeah. but those kind of things w- we we understand those kind of differences uh, are are kind of relatively transparent. Those are the things we ask about. But but you encountered some subtler cues and um, behavior. So uh, tell us about some of those things you notice.
1: Well, the one of the things that you learn when you go somewhere else like that is yeah, There's the sort of interactions that you mentioned about businessmen. Uh, George Bernard Shaw is reputed to have said that manners is the art of offending no one unintentionally. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if you wanted to offend someone, it had to be on purpose. Yeah. So, if you have, if if you have bad manners, though, you've offended someone without meaning to, and maybe without even knowing it. Right. So, very first, I, I was teaching, as I said, to graduate classes, and um, there's an ancient tradition in most of Europe, but certainly in Germany, called the academic quarter. And the presumption was that academics were so confused that they were not likely to be able to find their classrooms until at least 15 minutes after the supposed start time. Hmm. So um, I had a class that was supposed to start at 6 p.m., and I got there as is my want because I have a fetish about timeless timeliness. I, I got there at Remember 5 till that. 6,
0: uh-huh.
1: and two minutes after 6, five minutes after 6, there's nobody there. Somebody shows up, and then a few people were there by 10 after 6. So I thought, well, okay, uh, and then I, I, st- I started class, and a few more people came in, and I said, I, I really consider it rude if you come late, and people nodded. Uh, they, they accepted that, and they're, they're Germans after all, so I was expecting a certain timeliness, a yeah, certain – It's
0: a legendary a, stereotype. Yeah. I don't know if it's true. Sure. But well, it's a, it may be
1: a stereotype, but it is – that, that was a cultural expectation that I had was that people would be on time, and here it was just flagrantly wrong. So the second class, the same thing happened, even after I had done my little jerk act and said, I expect you to come on time. And so I said, you know, maybe you have a class beforehand. Uh, Maybe you have a train or something that you have to make. Let's start at 610 instead of 6, because I understand. So a kid raises his hand and says, so you mean 625. (laughs) And I said, well... I, I, this is a kid that I had talked to a couple times outside of class, and I thought, what a jerk. No, no, I don't mean 625. You I said would have said <laughs> 625 if I had meant 625. But finally, it was explained to me that you simply add 15 minutes to whatever the written down start time is, and everyone understands that. Well, everyone but me understands that, and so. There isn't a problem so long as people's expectations are consistent so the the meaning of 6 o'clock is actually 6.15, and everyone knows that without having to say. And so finally I just started – I started starting at 6.15, and it was all fine.
0: So this is the opposite, by the way, of Vince Lombardi time. Lombardi time was if the meeting was called for 6, you shut up at 5.45. Yeah. And if you came at 5.50, you were late. Yeah. Um, because it's disrespectful. Yeah. Uh, So just before we get into some of the the wider uh, things that happened to you in Germany uh – I see. You taught the class in English.
1: I did, and uh, that was—I was part of the reason they wanted me to do it. It was funded by the DAAD. It was to give them more exposure to English language and American culture. So I was there as an avatar of, of American culture, but uh, did restrain
0: to... myself from making a whole wide variety of observations <laughs> about <laughs> you as exemplar. I, as I the, do appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, one other question about that class: uh, Did you notice, in classes generally, did you notice? A different behavior by your students relative to American students, because there 's a certain my impression is, is that European students behave differently, have different expectations about the class their classroom demeanor, et cetera
1: Well, um, they were outraged that I assigned readings because you 're not supposed to assign readings what they're, they're, they basically read on their own and work on papers, and the fact that I expected them to have read and they, I quickly got away from this, but I expect them to have read before class. That's not the way it works. And They tried to explain that, that you, you, you can give readings if you want, but you can't possibly expect them to read it. And you can't really expect them to talk. This is a lecture. They show up, they listen, they write it down,
0: and then they go home. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I've heard is that there's less, quote, participation.
1: It's not just quantitatively less. It's qualitatively less. It's
0: nothing. Uh huh. <laughs> Interesting. Was that hard to adjust to? Um, I, I because I know you don't like to talk.
1: I right. I, I am reminded by Doug North when he got the uh, when he got the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, Bob Fogle was going before him. Fogel and Doug North both got the Nobel Prize in economics, and, and Fogel was answering a question and said, "And uh, I, I could talk about this for hours." And Doug North jumped in and said, "And if nobody stops him, he will." <laughs> <laughs> So yes, if no one stops
0: me, I'm happy to talk for hours. I I, I didn't mind it too much. That's why we're in the fields we're in. Yeah. Uh, So, in a, uh, and I, before we go on again, sorry to interrupt, I I just, there's this legendary story, I may have even talked about it on Econ Talk before, and you and I may have talked about it before. It involves, uh, I think it's Pagu and Marshall. Ah. You know this story? I don't think I do. I think, I, I hope I'm getting the ages right. I think Pagoo was Marshall's student or is it the other way no, around? It,
1: that, 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 that's the right order, Okay, yeah. so,
0: so Pagoo signs up for a class with Marshall. We're talking about Alfred Marshall and A.C. Pagoo. And um, it turns out there's one student in the class. It's Pagoo. Uh, and Marshall comes into class, uh, goes to the front of the room, opens <laughs> his notes, and proceeds to lecture to the one student. Who takes notes diligently, as, as you've just described? I think that's a true story. If any listeners out there uh, can verify that or have a source for it, uh, we'd appreciate it. So, classroom cl- classroom demeanor is, is different, but out in the world, uh, and I don't know if you want to reveal this, Mike, but I, you know I've seen the bicycle you drove around yeah. uh, on your website, Mike. We can put a link up to that if you're interested, uh, if you're willing. Yeah, uh, but. You were out as a, an American in a slightly different and sometimes radically different world. What were some of the experiences you had uh, interacting, uh, shopping, and, and doing other things?
1: Well, it really did make me think about the way that expectation shapes so, show, so much of what we consider to be rude. Now, the, those of you that have – the listeners who have been maybe to Japan or somewhere else, um, one of the first things you notice is that if you come up to a stoplight as a pedestrian – and if you look both ways and then cross against the light, even if there's no cars coming, the other people will yell at you. Right, my sister lived in Kyoto, Japan. I think we've talked about this. And she, mm-hmm. she crossed against the light once. And this, this little grandmother came out with a, an umbrella and, and tried to hit her because she was violating the social order. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter that there's no cars coming. The light's red. You're not supposed to go. In the U.S., I mean, you can get a ticket. I actually got a ticket in Washington, D.C. once for, uh, for jaywalking. But it, it would be pretty rare. It's it would,
0: pretty rare. I don't think it ex- – New York would be my uh, favorite place for this.
1: Uh, the, the, the taxis actually are – they enforce this because uh, they'll hit you. They'll hit you.
0: They'll try. I mean it's, it's – you know, close. Catch as catch can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well,
1: er- Erlangen, the, the city I was living in, which is 20 kilometers northwest of Nuremberg.
0: And what's the rough population?
1: Oh, sixty thousand. It's okay. a small medieval town. Most of that's the university. It also has a big uh, Siemens uh, research facility. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's pretty eggheadish. It, it I believe it has. I'm not sure if this is true, but I believe it has the highest concentration of bicycles per automobile in all of Germany. Mm. And if not, it's one. Of, it's in the top three. Okay. So that almost all of the traffic is bicycles. And interestingly, I'm I'm from the south and from the U.S. If I see someone crossing or someone uh, trying to get in on a bicycle, I'm going to try to let them in. I caused at least three pretty significant bicycle accidents <laughs> by trying to let someone in. Now, Russ, here's what you do. here
0: While you're on your bike?
1: I was riding my bike, uh-huh. and I just would slow down a little bit to let in a pedestrian... Uh, In a place where there was no other reason to slow down, and either I was hit or the person behind me had to stop and was themselves hit. So there's no question I caused this. What do you do? Let me ask you. Let me ask the the, the listeners also. Form in your mind the answer to this question. What do you do if a pedestrian is crossing and it's pretty crowded and you're riding a bicycle? The answer is aim at them. Ride directly towards them under the assumption that they will continue to walk. Now, there's two possible problems with this. If they're an American, they might stop, and you'll hit them. Right. Or if it's an American riding his bicycle, he might stop, and the person behind will hit. But if they're all Germans, you have a German pedestrian and a German bicyclist. The German bicyclist knows, ride directly towards the pedestrian as fast as you can. The pedestrian's going to take two more steps in the intervening time, and you'll go just behind them.
0: And how'd you find that out? Watching. Uh-huh.
1: After ca- I, I caused a pretty significant bike accident one day, and my legs were sore. <laughs> so I was sitting on a bench, and I thought, I'm going to figure this out. And it, it, it literally, and I asked people, and they said, of course. In fact, some of them, it took a second for them to understand my question, because it's, it was it's so obvious. so
0: natural. They'd of never course about you it. do that.
1: Yeah. When, to be fair, it makes perfect sense. It, it, the fact is, I was the one being rude. I was causing an accident by doing what I thought was polite.
0: Now, let me let me give you two other road examples uh, that I find challenging in America. Where it's, it's one of them is straightforward; the other one less so. Uh, I've just come back from California, and in California, particularly in the Bay Area, and particularly on the campus of Stanford, uh, you stop for a pedestrian in the middle of the of the block, even. Yeah. And uh, as a pedestrian there, you come to be pretty aggressive. You. Mm-hmm. you Pedestrians act like New Yorkers, as do the bicyclists, and the car drivers act uh, extremely passively. Yeah. Uh, a four-way stop can lead, and at it, it Stanford, can lead to a, uh, a standoff,
1: an equilibrium.
0: Yeah, it's a little frightening. Everyone's <laughs> looking, and then finally, somebody waves. The other person waves. You know, in New York, it's you know, hey, I was there a milli-, you know, a millisecond yeah. before you. I'm on the right. I'm going. Um, so it's interesting to think about coming back as a pedestrian from Stanford to a more aggressive place. You might get it's, hit. It, it's dangerous. And similarly, a visitor there as a driver is dangerous because they're not used to that those expectations. No, no way you'd expect that. But it's very clear what the, you know, you learn very quickly what they are in that place. Now, I'm gonna give you another example where the expectations are not are not clear. The lights, we had a, when I first moved to DC, there was an enormous uh, thunderstorm and the power went out in a large part of Montgomery County where I live and a lot of the stoplights were out. Yeah. Uh, What is one's expectation about a stoplight? I think in general, a stoplight, if you're on the busy street and the cross street's relatively quiet, most, some people's, I won't say most because I have no idea, but some people's expectation is, you pretend it's green if you're on the busy street, and you pretend it's red on the less busy street. Or you, as if there's no light and there's a stop sign. On a the stop sign, exactly. Street. And so on as a driver on the busy street, I found that extremely unnerving, and I would slow down uh, uh, and almost get hit yeah. sometimes uh, by the people behind me who they didn't expect horn. me yeah, to, to slow down. And I'm coming into an intersection where there's a light that's not working. Right. Uh, to me, it was obvious that you should slow down or stop even, treat it like a four-way stop. Yeah. They wanted to treat it like a one-way stop, only for the small cross street. It's not clear what you do there.
1: Right, and the, the, any, it's like any coordination game. The problem comes from the mix of, of expectations. Any, any consistent set of expectations would it's work, fine. although yeah. it would have distributional consequences. Right. The problem for the accidents is when you have a mix.
0: And of course, I think we've talked about or at least I've, I've blogged on a cafe hike. there are intersections, particularly in Asia, where people go at full speed, a, kind of akin to your bike um I'll try to put some of these videos up on links to this conversation but there are there are in- intersections where people go they don't hesitate yeah. <laughs> they drive at full speed at a four way stop without a stop light or stop sign, yeah, and everybody's racing through, and then all of a sudden the other side gets. Gets the, gets the edge, and yeah. they're all racing through. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's an unbelievable um But, but it sort thing. of works
1: out. You, you, you On uh, Café Hayek, you linked to the video that I took from atop the Arc yes. de Triomphe.
0: Right. And Similar phenomenon. It, Describe that. Well, what,
1: what happened was um, there, there, there are no lanes. It, it's really surprising <laughs> to see this big, heavily congested circle with no lanes. But you watch the way people drive, and you can see why there are no lanes, because they they basically figure it out. And what would happen is just what you just said. People on the outside are going to go around the circle. People on the inside want to get off the circle. And one or the other ends up stopping, and the momentum means that, let's suppose that there's a bunch of people on the inside of the circle who want to leave the circle and go straight. There's no way for these circle continuers to break in. But then there is a break, and the circle continuers start to go, and the ones who want to get off have to wait. But it, it they, they manage to figure it out without any lanes, without any signals. Now I'm sure there's some accidents and shaken. It's France after all, yeah. so there may be some words exchanged, and the, the 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 Parisian emergency break is the horn. But still, they manage to work it out.
0: Yeah, it's an example of emergent order without rules, where the rules emerge uh, spontaneously. I would hate to drive it, though, because I'm not used to driving yeah. in that setting. Right. Um, it would be very alarming. Uh, it's a place I'd like to teach my daughter how to drive. I think that would be the ideal. Yeah, that um, would be terrific. It'd, yeah. it'd give, give
1: her a stick shift and put her put <laughs> her in the, the, the circle around the Arc de Triomphe.
0: Yeah. Uh, I would <laughs> enough have trouble on the quiet suburban street. <laughs> uh, as my brother calls it, it's white-knuckle time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let, let's move away from traffic, which is um, – an example where decisions are being made very spontaneously, often in real time. Uh, there's human life at stake. To, to this, uh, an issue of civility and and versus uh, rudeness. Talk about what happened to you at the. Um, it was a grocery, I think. Yeah, I'm.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not a. I'm not a big uh, expert on civility. As those of you who know me know. Nonetheless, I would prefer not to offend people unintentionally in the United States. If you see an elderly woman coming up with a shopping cart and. You know, you're thinking you're going to use a shopping cart. When you go in, you might say, uh, I'll, "I'll take that the rest of the way for you and save her the trip," and go ahead and take the shopping cart in. Now, those of you who have been to Europe are probably laughing at me already because you know many places. In order to get a shopping cart, you have to pay, in effect, a deposit of a euro. And the way that it works, a euro is it's a something like a dollar forty, but it's a, a coin. Um, you, you put the coin into a slot in the grocery cart, and then it unchains, and then when you finish with the grocery cart, you put it back in, slip the little chain back into the slot, and the, the euro pops out. And that it, it, it makes sense. It's not that you're buying the, the shopping cart. It's just a deposit. Shopping carts obviously are worth a lot more than that. But it's a, a way t- to so make sure might,
0: people return them. Yeah, they have a tendency to wander. it's interesting. Well, At the end, we'll come back and talk about the United States and what's a little bit different, but that's the custom there. That's the procedure.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in the U.S., it's true that you see shopping carts all over the place, and in Europe, as a result, you see the shopping carts are all tightly chained up there right up by the store, so I, I can see the reason for it. I didn't know this. I just <laughs> didn't know, um, and I've been to a lot of grocery stores, and the problem was... The apparent familiarity of the situation, because I thought, you know, look, I've been, I've walked past churches, I've walked into restaurants and tried to order things, and I've got them wrong, but this is a grocery store. I know how to act at a grocery store. So I see an elderly woman coming up with her shopping cart, and I pant, I don't speak German, but I pantomime, you know, I'll take that for you, ma'am, and she, her eyes kind of open wide, and I have to give her credit, she was pretty quick, she's an old lady wearing old lady shoes and was pushing a heavy shopping cart. But still, she faked left, and then went right. (laughs) But I was too quick for her. Let's be honest, I was too quick for her. And I grabbed the cart, and I I was going to take it. And she starts yelling, screaming, actually. Which surprised me, because I didn't know what I had done. And then I see a policeman running towards (laughs) us. And he really wasn't running towards us. He was running towards me.
0: Yeah.
1: And when you see a policeman running, and he's looking at you, it makes your heart beat fast. Especially when you don't know what in the world has gone on.
0: Yeah.
1: So she starts She's yelling in German. He's yelling in German at me. And I say something I said 30 or 40 times a day. I'm sorry, I don't speak German. Fortunately, he was ex-military, uh, ex-German military, and had lived near, it turns out, a U.S. military base. And still pretty angrily and right in my face said, What are you doing? <laughs> And I said, I tried to explain, and I could see the, the corners of his mouth start, starting to turn up. He's trying not to laugh, because I'm really scared. The old lady's really upset, and the whole, the whole situation's kind of absurd. Um, I, but he he, checks, he asked for my ID, and I, I, didn't, I don't carry my passport just routinely there in town, but I, I had my Duke ID and my driver's license, and I showed him. And He, he mentioned that his nephew had gone to Duke to a business school, to the executive program. So, you know, he and I are, are kind of relaxing. And he said, I, I understand, okay. Uh that that I, I see what happened. But then he again, almost smiling, says, She's still looking, isn't she? And I, I looked around him and the old lady is peeking out from behind a concrete pylon. And she mm-hmm. clearly wants justice to be done. Sure. So I nod. I say, Yeah, she she's still looking. And then he starts yelling and poking his finger into the middle of my chest. And I'm not going to yell, but imagine that I'm yelling now. And he says, you have to understand, she doesn't speak English. And if you just nod a couple of times, our business here today will be finished. (laughs) (laughs) I I considered that to be excellent police work.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I,
1: I mean, I'm abashed. I'm nodding. He walks back towards his car, and the old lady nods her head and gets into her car. Mm-hmm. Because justice had been done, she it was okay with her that I hadn't been arrested. But if you're going to try to steal a euro from an old lady, some sort of punishment must be meted out.
0: Yeah. So, but she got her euro.
1: She, she 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 had by that time taken her cart back and gotten her euro. Yes. And you learned a lesson from that point on. I always made sure and had a euro in my pocket. Actually. For the next week or so, I just carried stuff on my arms because I was I was too psychologically <laughs> damaged. Yeah,
0: yeah. You may never be the same around objects. I, with four small wheels. Just the
1: it. just yeah. the thought of carts. If I even hear one, it frightens me, especially if it has a wobbly wheel.
0: Now, now that's an example where it's you know once you learned what had happened, it was no big deal. Uh, you didn't do it again. Presumably, or you know, uh, you yeah. look for an older woman the next time, so you're <laughs> <be> even more <laughs> she, sure to she, get she her. You're too arm. loud. <laughs> yeah, right. You Need know, a quiet, a more feeble and, and yeah. quieter one who can't reach the cops. But you know I, what I find interesting in these kind of situations is the gray areas. I can't think of any right off the top of my head. They may come to me in a minute, but areas where there's some nuance. There, there really wasn't much nuance. You knew now not to do that again. You knew what what the order of things was. Uh, but it's just interesting in real life, the subtlety often of, of signals and...
1: Well, you have already mentioned an example, really, and it, it's tipping. Um, people basically don't tip in Germany. The, the way that you would normally tip is to, um, if you pay something, you would go up to the next euro because for some reason they consider it to be very annoying to have to make change. Hmm. Now, what I almost always did was they would give me the bill I would give them maybe a, suppose it's 17 1750 euro. I'd give them a 20 euro bill, wait for them to make change, and then hand them back two euro as a tip, because that's what I would normally do in the U.S. I did this for months. And I noticed that they always were angry. But even though a two euro tip is a pretty big tip, normally you would give at most 10%, probably more like 3%. Any tip at all is going to make them happy, because it's just not a tipping culture nor is it a service culture. I've heard people call <laughs> it a service wasteland.
0: <laughs> Curious how that
1: works. Yeah, right, it's a different equilibrium. But, yeah. So here I was giving an almost American-sized tip, and they were angry, and the gray area was, it's just demeaning to have to make change. Hmm. Why would that be? It, just, it doesn't take that long, but no one, and the answer is, and it was explained to me several times, no one, no one does it. It, it, you, why would you make someone? It's like you're standing there watching while you you threw it on the floor. The analogy that was made to me was: suppose you had thrown it on the floor and you wanted the person to pick it up. Of course, obviously, that would be demeaning. Right. That's how, that was how they viewed having to make change. That's interesting. And it, it, there's no way I would have expected that. And it was it was a much more gray area because I didn't immediately figure it out.
0: Well, let me give another example. That, that it's not the gray area I'm thinking about, but it's getting that direction. Um. If you're in, maybe we talked about this in our um, in our gouging uh, podcast. I don't think so. But if you're in line at the grocery and someone, or well, here's where the gray area comes in. In an airplane, when you're waiting to board, and they call group two, there's a certain, when they call group two at the airport. There's a certain dance that that emerges at the gate where you don't really line up. There's sometimes you do. Sometimes you literally line up and Well if you're in Group Two you do. Well, you're but, in group even, three? but even group two with Southwest you tend they, they cattle oh, right. you know, they cattle car you up. You actually yeah. literally line up. But but at a lot of airlines people are kind of sometimes it's the group threeers waiting for the group two to finish. There's sort of a semicircle that forms around the gate and people who've not people like me who have a neurosis about whether their bag's gonna fit yeah. into the overhead rack, whether there's gonna be space for it are kind of nearer to the front, but but if people have already stu- stood up and formed that semicircle, and now you get up, it's sort of not okay to get toward the front of it, even though there's no line. Yeah, you're sort of ex- to me, again, maybe yep. people feel differently. You, you would
1: those. have to elbow your way through them
0: sometimes, they're just kind of you can you could be in right behind someone near the front and surge forward, but it's kind of bad form, yeah. Um. Even though you're all getting on the same airplane. It's bizarre how we're racing to get on so we can sit and do nothing. Well, but it, it but, is true that the overhead fills. That, that's, I think, part of the reason. And this is, is going to
1: happen more and more as airlines start charging yeah, for checked
0: bags. Yeah, I don't – puzzle to me is why airlines don't develop planes with larger carry-on space since it is – but maybe it's just my neurosis. Maybe other people don't. You probably have it, right? This neurosis? I always this anxiety. Check
1: bags. My, my neurosis for this is so severe that I check bags to avoid the anxiety that you're describing. Oh, but,
0: but Mike, if you check your bag, you have the anxiety, they're going to lose your bag. Uh, I, you
1: don't my, have that my, one. My, 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 I, I would pay somebody to take all of my clothing.
0: Really? Wow. Gosh. Okay. I say I've got all my valuable stuff in my computer bag. It weighs about 40 pounds yeah. maybe 60 so I have like shoulder problems, neck problems. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a bad situation. But with <laughs> but with an airline to me the the only obviously bad form and this drives me nuts and it happens though is when they call group 2 and a group 3 cheats. Yeah. And usually the, the person checking the boarding passes just you know waves them through. Yeah. And sometimes but sometimes they say, "Oh no, no. no. You're you're in the wrong group." Yeah. And the person's kind of embarrassed because they they're cheating. They have to kind of pretend, "Oh yeah, I wasn't really paying attention, right?" I <laughs> well, take my bags. To, to cheat about something so
1: petty doesn't is matter. What's yeah. embarrassing well, if, well, if, if they were true. trying to steal a thousand dollars? Okay, yeah. I'm not embarrassed. You caught me. But,
0: but the other example I was going to give is at a grocery store. You're waiting in line. It's against the rules to to cut in line. To, yeah. to literally to shove your cart and and elbow your way in uh, to the front of the line. It would also be considered unbelievably gauche to act like an economist and say to the group of, say, four people who are there ahead of you, folks, I'm kind of in a little bit of a hurry. I wonder if I could give each of you $2. Yeah. And can I cut in front?
1: Yeah. Would, would you mind? Well, and, and what some people might try is just find one person. and Say, I'll give you ten bucks. Yeah. And let me. I'll slip not compensate in. the the other ones that I'm cutting in front of. But, but but
0: but let's say I did it for all of them. And I think yes. Yeah. Sta- even
1: if even if you did it for all
0: of them, and the standard answer that that we sort of uh, have in economics for why that doesn't happen is transaction costs. You know, uh, it's it. Somebody might say, Well, I'll do it for four, and then yeah. there's a discussion, and that's obviously costly. But it's more than that. There's a cultural taboo. … to bribe people or to compensate people for cutting in line. You'd be much more likely to succeed if you said, I'm really my, – my my kids are in the car. I'm really in a hurry. Yeah. Would it be okay if We'd I just We'd have to be
1: voluntary. I, you, I have let people in under those All the time.
0: All the time. You yeah. do it in a second. And, of course, there's a risk some people will lie. and You, you don't verify it. Nobody cares. It's, it's a and, – and yet Julian Simon created a way – for people we'll just let that go. Uh-huh. can we let that go, please okay, so Julian Simon invented a way suggested a way for airlines to let people cut in line when there was not enough uh, spaces on the plane. The airlines do this little mini auction on the spot with with transaction costs, but somehow it works out remarkably well where they say, you know we don't have enough spaces on the plane, who's willing for you know a free round trip ticket to go on a later flight? yeah. Uh, Sometimes there's a mad rush as people compete. Sometimes nobody raises their hand, so they'll say two round-trip tickets. It's a very effective way to solve the problem. It's an auction. Yeah, that you can't anticipate the exact schedule of who's going to show up, and Mm -hmm. so they overbook on purpose, and every once in a while it doesn't work out, and they solve it very beautifully. So I find it fascinating that those culture – that there's that – that's the culture. Sometimes it's okay to use – Prices of money, once it's institutionalized and formal like that, if you tried to innovate it on your own, you'd get raised eyebrows, and people would pretend you weren't talking uh, if you started to try to bribe them to cut in line. Yeah,
1: they, 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 would, be, they would be embarrassed for you, and yeah. certainly they would be embarrassed for themselves. And So, they, yeah, I think they would probably pretend not you'd even to have hurt you. look down. Well, wh- and... Why is this – I think what I think – one of the things I think is interesting about culture is that it, it seems like it's kind of hardwired. And let me, let me give an example that it actually happened to me in the United States, but I, I think most people are going to identify with. We have a physiological response to seeing someone else breaking the rules. And as a result, we're more likely to provide the public good of norm enforcement. Now, a lot of times, violation of norms actually doesn't harm us very much. So like the little old lady that came out with the umbrella, uh, in, in Japan, it didn't make any sense for her except that she was providing the public good. It, it is externalities if we all try to provide the enforcement of norms. And so we have we have an emotional response. There's a lot of work in philosophy and behavioral economics that treat the emotional and physiological response that we have to seeing someone violate a cultural norm as being a biological and evolved way mm-hmm. of... Of, of solving the collective action problem, because rather than just saying, "Oh boy, he's breaking the rules. That, that's a shame," we get angry. Now, the problem is that uh, in, in some cases, completely inappropriate. That men, particularly if they're driving and there's a lot of traffic and somebody cuts them off, they think, "I'm going to teach him
0: a lesson." Right. Well, it's it's not rational to to take on the costs of that. The benefits yes. are shared by thousands of people. If there the are benefit, any benefits at all, yeah, the benefits to you are trivial. You're bearing all the costs. Why would you go chase a guy down and scream in his face? Yeah, almost? well, I, I,
1: I was I was in Washington D.C. I used to live in in D.C. and I was waiting in line for a a, a movie. And it was a pretty long wait. It was a while before it was going to open. I'd been there about 15 minutes. It was probably about 10 more minutes before I would get to the front of the line and get to go into my, my movie. And I was talking to the person behind me, and I turned around, and in front of me was about a 5-foot-tall, 100-pound woman. And she had not been there before. I'd been standing there for, for quite a <laughs> while, and she hadn't been there before. I said, you can't butt in line. Now, she looked up at me. I, for the,
0: You're l- taller than 5 feet. The yeah.
1: listeners might not know. I'm, I'm about 6'1", 250 pounds. <laughs> And she looked up at me and said, if you say one more word, I'm going to call the police. (laughs) I was so angry. I was so upset at this. I barely remember seeing the movie, and I didn't sleep. (laughs) Now, what was it that she had actually cost me? And the answer is like 20 seconds.
0: Yeah, not even that. You
1: get to the front of the line. There's three different uh, windows open. And so, at most, she cost me twenty seconds. This had nothing to do with any rational response. It was that clearly what she had done was walked along until she found a large man who wasn 't looking and just nipped in there
0: yeah,
1: and I bet she 'd done it before and it it really it it, it benefited her. why don 't we see more of that sort of sociopathic behavior? How is it that societies defend themselves against this? And the answer is we respond irrationally to seeing violations of cultural norms by providing more norm enforcement than we should. It it shouldn't. I should have laughed, but I didn't. In fact, thinking about it now, it still upsets me.
0: I was going to say, I think my stomach's churning just at the thought of it.
1: How dare you? (laughs) Yeah. Think how you would react because I I was completely undone. And frankly, if it had been a guy, we might have had a fight, and I'm not proud of that either. That's stupid.
0: Yeah, that's really extraordinary. In fact, the the right I guess the right experiment would be if uh, if she had said to you, uh, "Could you help me with this?" and and you'd said to the person behind you, "I'll be right back," and you'd gone and helped her with some task she needed four hands, instead she only had two, and it took you 20 seconds, and you came back, you wouldn't say, "Gosh, the nerve of her dragging yeah. me out of line for yeah. 20 seconds," right? You would have yep. said. Or, or when you were near the front, yep. you just would have said, oh, "I did a good deed." Even yep. here, I would here have you felt did, better. You sure. did a good deed here. You let this person who was obviously extremely anxious yep. about seeing the movie, someone like myself, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you shortened the line for her. Yeah. Uh, but but it is, and I'm very. There's a visceral reaction in those settings.
1: It, we, we can't control it, and that that's actually why it is an adaptive sort of group response. Uh, and the, the interesting thing, what the, the, I guess the theory that I would advance for this is there's two components to this. There's the contents of a black box, and that's the set of culturally determined norms that we it, they're inherited. Let me come back to that in a second. They are inherited um, because they're, we didn't decide on them. We, we learned them. And, and if you're in a different culture... I believe in lines because I was raised in a culture that has lines. If I'd been raised in China, I, there, there, there's not the norm of lines. People just crush in, really. And so, have you been to China? I, I have not, but several. Uh, John Aldrich, one of my colleagues here at Duke, said he found it very disconcerting if they're trying to go to a movie uh, because people just press up and they're 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 pressed right against you.
0: And the poli- and the polite guy who hangs back ends Never up missing the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: But it's not politeness. You're right, an idiot. It's not. It's not right. That, it's, that's it's not ignorance. the allocation ignorance. mechanism. Yeah, exactly. So the, we, we have, a, we have a, a, a sort of soft or conditioned idea about what the norms are, but then everybody, all humans basically, except for a few sociopaths, have this physiological response to seeing whatever the contents of that black box are broken. And so, um, well, there, there's, a, there's an ancient example of this, that that's one of my favorites that I, I raise uh, with students, partly because I want them to make sure that they know what the word shibboleth is, is but there, there's there's an old story from the the, the Hebrew Bible, uh, Judges chapter 12. Um, the, the the word is, I think in in Hebrew it's actually shibolet.
0: Yeah, there's no th in Hebrew.
1: Yeah, so it, it's shibbolet. and 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 the the accent is different, but the the English word is shiboleth. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a shibboleth is either an ear of corn or wheat. Uh, or a, a freshet, a stream, but it, its meaning doesn't really matter. What matters is the pronunciation. There were two different Hebrew tribes that had had—I I guess you'd call it a war. It was certainly a battle. The the two tribes were either were, were the uh, the Ephraimites and the Gileadites, and the Gileadites had won. This is about twelve hundred BC, so three thousand years ago, more than three thousand years ago, the Gileadites had won. And the Ephraimites were trying to get back across the Jordan River to their home territory. And the Gileadites had set themselves up on, there were two large fords a couple of miles apart on the Jordan. And they were, uh, trying to, to find out if they could, uh, if if any of the Ephraimites were disguised as refugees trying to cross back into their territory. And so what the what Judges said, let me just quote it, um, Gilead then cut Ephraim off from the fords of the Jordan. And whenever Ephraimite fugitives said, let me cross, the men of Gilead would ask, are you an Ephraimite? And they'd say, no. They then said, very well, say ye, Shibboleth. And if anyone said, "Sibboleth" because they couldn't pronounce it, they would kill him. They slew there that day by the fords of the Jordan 42,000 Ephraimites. So I imagine this long line of people. (laughs) And you you get up to the front, and you've got uh, uh, presumably thousands and thousands of Gileadites, because otherwise the the 42,000 Ephraimites could have rushed them. So an army, you're trying to get through an army so you can get back to your home.
0: I like the sequence of the questions. So it's it's trust but verify. Are you an Ephraimite? Okay.
1: So well, <laughs> if, if, if they say yes, then they kill you for being an idiot.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you, if you
1: can't pronounce, pronounce shibboleth, then they kill you for being a, a, an Ephraimite. Well, here's the thing, and here's why it's inherited. Culture is inherited from the people who raise you. Culture is inherited from the people who raise you. It's not genetic. Suppose you had a pair of um, Ephraimite twins. One of them was raised as an Ephraimite, and the other was raised with the Gileadites. And this this is the pre-exilic Hebrew had a number of dialects. And it actually, I looked at this a, a bit, did some research on it. There's some question about whether the story could be literally true, because unlike the TH sound, the SH sound is really important, apparently, in all the pre-exilic Hebrew dialects. So it's not clear exactly what they're getting not at. Not much of but a test. Well, but, but, but taking the story at face value, matter. Um, there, there are some languages that have the S-H sound and others that don't. Right. All children, basically, unless you have some deformity of the tongue or palate, could pronounce the S-H sound if they're exposed to it before about the age of six or seven. Your, your ability to acquire language is highly plastic. Children are just machines at picking up sounds and languages up until a certain pretty young age. So you, separ- you separate Ephraimite twins. One of them is raised by the Ephraimites, cannot pronounce Shibboleth. The other one, raised by the Gileadites, can So there's nothing genetic about it. It just depends how you were raised. But then it becomes something very close to hardwired. Right. Now, the, Sh- the Shibboleth really was hardwired because the- presumably they're trying really hard to pronounce it.
0: Yeah, they're not Yeah, Some They're not casual, thinking. yeah. But oh, that's very cool
1: it so it is interesting to think about the other things that are kind of hardwired for us that we take for granted, and being in this other culture made me think about that it's it sort of it, there's a bunch of things that seem to me obviously right that I have no argument for being right except that that's what i'm used to
0: yeah, it reminds me um, as you you called that person who cut in line a, a sociopath yeah. which is usually a, a term we reserve for a, a a slightly more heinous uh, <laughs> type of behavior. But what what I think is worth mentioning is that that line cutter was really uh, a parody of what we might call homo economicus, economic man, in this case economic woman, who took advantage of – acted in her, quote, own self-interest, Clearly did not feel – Shame, yeah. very or, important. No shame, no guilt. No shame or guilt that you looked at her with horror and disgust, because, in fact, she felt sorry for you. Yeah. If anything, not for herself. Yeah. What? What like an you, idiot! Yeah. You. Uh, you know. It, it, the example. Uh, coming back to our tipping story, uh, you don't tip a bank teller who gives you when you cash a check for hundred dollars uh, and gives you a hundred back. You don't say, "Here's here's fifteen dollars for you." Yeah. Uh, They'd think you were a fool if you did that. But in a restaurant, if you don't do it, you're considered gauche. You're considered ill-mannered. You're considered homo economicus. Right, and homo economicus is – I think the behavioral economics critique of economics is sometimes overdone. I think everybody understands, every good economist understands that acting in your narrowest of self-interest is uh, not always what people do. Rational economic man tips. Rational economic man gives blood. Rational economic man uh, doesn't cut in line for all kinds of reasons, some of them being these social norms. But if you did not get raised with those norms – yeah. Uh, and Jennifer Roback Morse uh, talks about this a little bit in, uh, in her book. Uh, on love and the family, if you're not raised with those norms, you can become homo economicus, and you're a very unpleasant. Per- you can be a very unpleasant person to be around. You don't have a lot without of without understanding why other people don't like you. Yeah, because you don't conform to the norms of civility and and behavior that are expected of you. Well, let me let me
1: try let me try to see what you think of my thesis. Then homo economicus is a sociopath. <laughs> Other, it would be perceived as a sociopath if what you mean is I get away with everything that I can get away with. Now, you can say that it's a repeat game, and I actually end up caring, but I think it's something yeah. more than that.
0: Well, I think in, I think there is I think the right point to make in in the uh, policy context is that I think in general people who do behave that way get short run benefit and huge long run costs. They have uh, they have trouble finding business partners. They have trouble finding people to contract with because it's going to be hard to get married. Their costs are high, exactly. Um, the cost of dealing with such people is high. And and really, uh P. T. Barnum, you know, gets a bad rap as the for his quotation, there's a sucker born every minute. Uh, you know, he, again, we may have talked about this, but he is the person really who created the circus. Not because he invented it but because he created the Honest Circus. Uh Before he came along, circuses would come to town. People would stand in crowds and watch the the acts. And the owner of the circus would have pickpockets who would would would. circulate among the crowd. And when when the circus left town, the people would be poor not because of the admission fee but because their thieves had taken their money. And Barnum said, we're not going to do that. And uh, he wrote a book about uh, how to behave as as a business person. Suggesting that honest dealing was the road to profit.
1: To profits, yes. Not to loss. (laughs) If you can capture the the reputation part of it. But it, it is interesting, the role that shame and guilt play. And we look at different cultures. Sometimes they're organized by shame, and sometimes they're organized by guilt. Guilt is, I have a sense that I will feel bad if I do something perceived as wrong. Shame is that other people will think I've done something wrong and I've brought it to my family. Mm-hmm. So in the Middle East, for example, it's much more of a shame-based culture than Northern Europe and the United States, which tend to be more guilt-based cultures. I mean, there, there's uh, caricatures that, that Catholic and Jewish people tend to be much more guilt mm-hmm. in the sense that they internalize this. But almost no society could work very well unless we self monitor and the reasons that we've given really are three. One is we care about our family, and we we will demean the the position and reputation of our family. But so right. if you're all by yourself, you don't care as much about that. Right. If you worry though of, for religious reasons or others, that I would just I, I would feel terrible if I ever butted in line. I, I then I wouldn't be able to watch the movie because I think what a jerk I am. Yeah,
0: how did I do that?
1: And the third thing is that just for economic reasons, reputation matters a lot for profitability and trust because everybody recognizes you can't specify all the future contingencies of contracts. The transactions cost of dealing with homo economicus are really high. And so you have to rely on, on, on one shot homo economicus are really high. But in a repeat setting, many of these problems are solved by uh, the the incentives for cooperation and the fact that reputation internalizes what look like external costs.
0: Yeah, now it's a very the the. Now we're getting finally to this point. I, w- I was interested in before this gray area of what's allowed and what isn't allowed. Uh, one of the more, I think, interesting cases where at least in America this comes up is in a rental contract. Say, just was just on vacation. We rented a a place and we we put down a deposit for half of the amount and when we when i we showed up we gave the uh the owner the other half and this was the husband of the people who owned the place well the wife after we didn't meet for a couple days reminded me when we arrived when she met, met us that actually we weren't supposed to just put down the rest of the the rental that she expected us to give us another check give her another check which be a deposit against damages and this and, is, a, and it is a
1: standard provision. It's a standard.
0: Of pro, it's a standard procedure. But she looked at me uh, and said, "You know, uh, don't worry about it." She made a decision, obviously foolish.
1: I, I would. I would have had the opposite. Yeah, conversion. double. You should have doubled <laughs> it
0: with my. Well, she didn't see my kids. That was a big mistake. No, she. She looked at me and like either out of embarrassment that face to face. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, face to face, you're saying I don't trust you. Yeah, give me the was, money.
0: That bothered her. I think. Uh, and so – and she also, by the way, forgot to ask for the cleaning fee, which I volunteered later the next day because yeah. uh, I think – I also think she felt kind of uncomfortable yeah. asking for the money outright even though we would already agreed to it. And, but I felt bad. I, I knew I would feel bad if later I didn't pay for it and she, eh, even if she didn't ask. So I gave her the cleaning fee voluntarily on it, in another check the next day. Uh-huh. But, but this idea of, of damages is so vague. There's no definition, right? Obviously we damaged the place. We tracked in dirt. Yeah. We we may have torn something. We may have scratched something. Scratched the wall. You, you things, clearly scratched the wall. Things happened. Uh and with my kids, often really dramatic things happen. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, nothing that I saw, although, you know, again, even that is not reliable. They may have done something and not mentioned it to me, hid it for me. She might think something was a damage that I didn't. Uh it's a very interesting thing. And usually landlords get references on renters. And tenants, tenants don't get references on landlords, uh-huh. but, of course, they could because if it was a tendency for landlords to always take the deposit and say, well, you, you scratched this, you did that.
1: Yeah, you could probably make it stick, and the transactions cost of suing to oh, recover
0: are too high. So there has to be a sort of expected level of damage that's considered, quote, okay. Uh-huh. And a related example – we've talked about this before I think on the program – is when you sell a house – what condition do you leave it in for the next oh, yeah. the next person? Yeah, um, some things are considered okay, some things are considered gauche, but nobody specifies that. There's a probably some kind of. Boilerplate in the contract, in a, you know, in a clean and reliable condition, or as yeah. is as it was when blah blah blah. I'm sure there's some legalese that if you wanted to sue, you could try, but it's so unpleasant to sue that the way that problem generally gets solved is through the norm of you don't leave garbage strewn about, you don't leave your stuff there, and, and say, well, you can keep it or not. I'm doing you a favor. You, but you'll never see the person again. You'll never Why see. It? You there's no repeated dealing. No repeated dealing. Yeah, but most uh, of us do. But as you say, a culture works well when. Those norms are both – they emerge and then they're passed on to children and to neighbors uh, in a very informal way.
1: Well, and and social scientists call it a nonspecific reciprocity, which seems like a a contradiction. But it means that I expect other people to treat me that way. So it's not you and I have a specific long-term relationship. But I, as a member of this culture, I'm going to clean my apartment before I move out. And if I if I own an apartment, I expect the person to clean it. And by and large, people do it. It's it's obviously true that that doesn't always happen. But by and large, there's this nonspecific reciprocity where I think, since other people are doing it, I should do it also, and I do.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Uh, do you have anything else you want to talk about?
1: Well, it's a shame always to
0: uh... – I have two other points.
1: Well, I'll be very brief. Um, be, as,
0: be as long as you want.
1: The the uh, We should always talk about baseball.
0: And uh, enough about there, it.
1: there was a very important use of a cultural shibboleth as an identification because shibboleth is also a uh, – it's almost a code, a
0: password. Yeah, it's, that's what it's come to mean. It doesn't mean a word you can't pronounce. It yeah. means a password. Yeah. It means swordfish for those of you who are password fans. That's <laughs> a, a Marx Brothers reference. I, I see. <laughs> not gonna, I'm not going to put the link in. You got to find it. That's that's just fine. So it, I think it's horse feathers if you're checking. Th-
1: no, we have the link.
0: Yeah.
1: World War II, Battle of the Bulge. There was a a, a, a Waffen SS, a Special Weapons SS uh, division that was going up north through Saint Vith and then Malmody. and they'd made considerable progress. They sent ahead some uh, scouts who spoke perfect, I mean perfect English, who'd been raised in the United States. And they're, they're, so their English was idiomatic, unaccented English, American English. And they sent them ahead wearing American uniforms to just try to, to, to blow up things, change the, uh, the signs on crossroads, and make it more difficult for reinforcements to be brought forward. So they're operating 50, 75 miles behind the lines uh, to try to make it more difficult to bring up reinforcements. And the Americans discovered this. And the question is, how do you identify this person? Because their English was perfect. And, of course, the answer was, you, you hold them at gunpoint, and you say, who led the American League in home runs in 1941? Yeah. And it turned out that it actually worked almost perfectly. Now,
0: Almost it, perfectly. Yeah, oh, they it, shot it a like couple
1: people. Yeah. There's some type to error. <laughs> <laughs> All, they didn't shoot them. All they did was imprison no, them. So they—they they did the net did, was cast a little too widely, admittedly, but it, it it caught almost all of the Germans who had been back. They'd been raised there, but they'd been back in Germany for years. So baseball is literally the American shibboleth, in the sense that it was used as a as a password around Malmody and Saint
0: And Of course, you know, there is a uh, temptation to say, "Well, they could have just learned that that was the unlike the the biblical example where they physically couldn't mimic yeah. the right answer—you could, if word could get back to the Germans, yes. mas- the German spies—you could say, "Well, it was." Uh, you could study for a few minutes. You know who was it, by the way? In 1941, I don't know. We'll have to look that up too. But you could tell them who it was. But of course, even if you got the right it answer, it was Ted Williams. Mm, yeah, he. Well,
1: that was before he it was 41, before the war. Before, he, before,
0: yeah. I mean, it was before his. He played in 41. Uh, so, but if he would said if the person knew it was was taught, oh, it was Ted. Say Ted Williams. So they'd yeah. say Ted Williams yeah. oh, and yeah. say, well, then they'd ask if there was a little suspicion. They might say, well, again, yeah, and, and what he hit? Well, he hit four oh six actually. Yeah. But you'd never get the answer to the second question. You could always press the cultural uh, questions far farther and uh, further, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and uncover them.
1: Well, that was the. That that was the – I'm
0: waiting for your point. Well, that's a great story. Um, I was going to just mention two things. One is – or one thing. One is uh, you talked about how cultural um, norms are inherited from your parents. This one I, I find it hard to believe because it's so ingrained in us. But I read in a wonderful book on music that I forget the name of right now and I'll put it up. Uh, when I find it, a wonderful book on music that major and minor keys in music, a major key is uh, – would be a song like Happy Birthday and a minor key would be something like um, – give me a minor key song. A, a mournful dirge is in a minor key. Uh-huh. In America, in a Western culture generally, major keys mean happy and minor keys, keys mean sad and mournful. But in other cultures, it's the opposite. They get happy over things that we would hear as sad, and uh-huh. they get sad over things that we would hear as happy. And of course, that has to be taught. But I would—it's right, have – inherited
1: from who raised
0: you. Yeah, but I would have thought that that would be hardwired. Yeah, that's you know? astonishing, isn't that? I, it could be true. It could be false. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's how astonishing it is. But but it was said to be true, and I and well, I, but I, let's, I trust let's, the I suppose it is a
1: question. And it, it, is it true that sort of the same key and cadence are perceived universally as being sad or happy? And I have no idea what the answer is, so that, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I find it uh, – I found that, again, hard to believe but really quite fascinating that that was cultural. Yeah. Because to our ear, uh, you know, you can come – sad music can make you cry. And the idea that – without words, right? Um, very powerful sad music can make you cry. How, how could it be? That that could be cultural and not and not hardwired in yeah. the brain, and of course, many 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 things about music are hardwired uh, in the brain and, mm-hmm. and are really uh, it's it's a it's an extraordinary. Well, once thought.
1: you start to think of it, though, the 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 difference becomes kind of slippery because it's a lot of things that you just think well that has to be universal
0: aren't for sure for sure. Any closing thoughts?
1: Well, um it, it was Ted Williams. He had uh, third, led led the league with thirty seven and had in nineteen forty one a slugging average of seven thirty five. A good year. On base percentage of five fifty one. That is, as you said, though, the year that he batted four oh six. And
0: uh I think well, that was the highest on base percentage uh before Barry of all time before Barry Bonds. Yeah. Um he had a really good year. He um he did not win the MVP that year though.
1: Because one voter left, left him off was completely. Was it that year?
0: Was it that the year?
1: I believe that. He, he certainly did not win the MVP that year.
0: Was it? Because it wasn't I don't that, know if
1: that was the year that he got left off, but how could he not? If you look, you look well, at
0: that. Well, the answer is, I think that's the year DiMaggio hit in 56 straight games. You're right.
1: It, it, it was. But still, Ted Williams led the league in, base on balls, batting average, home runs, on-base percentage runs, and slugging average. Yeah. So it, it is true that, that Joe DiMaggio had 348 total bases that year, which is remarkable.
0: But his 56-game hitting streak, which many people think will never be broken, which is yeah. not true, but uh, it will be broken someday if we live long enough, if, if baseball's <laughs> long enough. But interestingly, in that 56-game hitting streak, during that time, Ted Williams had a higher batting average. He just... Had a few games where he got a zero, so yeah. Uh, it, it but he zero also went hits. three for four. Yeah, too many other times to.
1: Well, it's the, the baseball is for me not just a, a shibboleth, but also a religious experience. So I'm uh, I, I'm happy to close with that.
0: Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. Uh, it is a baseball is a beautiful game. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, as always, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: It was great. Let's talk soon.